Well, President Dave Demchuk, why don't you come on up? Let's give it up one more time for Dave. Like I said, this is a tradition of ours. Oh, right on. He's got the journeyman going. I love it. Except, tradition of ours. Except the fine art of taking off a mask. Yeah, that's right. Kind of mess things up there for a minute. That Dave opens up our semester. So those who are freshmen in this room here, uh, President Dave Demchuk, he'll explain a bit about himself. And uh, this is a tradition of ours that we have him speak uh, at the beginning of each semester every year. So every we're year. thankful that we get to do this again. Hey, Bless you as you share. Thanks, Kev. Um, and... It is so cool to be here with all of you. I'm going to, Logan, I'm going to steal your Bible cover because it will help tilt this thing up because I, I don't want to look like an ostrich staring down at my iPad. It's something about that. Thanks, man. I owe you. I'll make sure that it's properly sterilized. I'll run it under the hand sanitizer. and Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, it is so good to see all of you. Good to see you back. Uh, upperclassmen, we... Uh, we all parted company last year in a bit of a hurry. Uh, I was joking around with some people earlier last week saying it felt like the rapture happened and the faculty all got left behind or something. <laughs> um, but it's good to see you all back. It's good to welcome freshmen. Um, one of the great things about having to wear masks is I don't know who anybody is, even though some of you I've been with for two or three years, some even fourth year. So uh, I'll ask your names and don't get offended. Um, I'm thinking of writing like with a Sharpie, Dave on my mask, so you know who I am. The only problem with a Sharpie is then you start to smell that ink, and before long, yeah, you start to give like these prophetic messages that aren't of God and stuff like that. So um, I, shared, I shared a passage of scripture with our faculty uh, at our faculty meeting on the 26th, and um, I, I had actually intended to, to speak on something a little different. Uh, in our time together this morning, and, and Gavin and Kimball said, you know, Dave, you should really preach on that passage. And I said, well, since how you're my pastors, I will obey you and do just that. So I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to focus in on, on one of my favorite books in the New Testament, which is the book of Philippians. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Um, and uh, a well-known passage that tags at the end of Philippians, and and for those of you that haven't taken any courses with me in the area of Pauline literature, one of the, one of the things that Paul does at the end of all of his letters is he has these, these short little um, fast-paced, you know, punchy little uh, endings that, that really are meant to leave somebody with, uh, with a lingering memory of what's been spoken. Because in the first century, people didn't have their own Bibles. There was not a Bible case that I could steal from Logan because there wouldn't have been a Bible. Um, but, but that being said, um, there's, there's a great passage at the conclusion of Philippians. And uh, if, if I were to give this sermon a title, and I'm not big on titles, I would say living above the ordinary. We're in rather extraordinary times uh, for reasons that we all know and are aware of. But... Uh, I think God's people are called to live some pretty extraordinary lives. And so for the few minutes that we have this morning, uh, I want to just uh, fire some thoughts at you based uh, out of Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And many of you could probably say this with me, um, in your minds at least. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So three things uh, that, that define uh, an extraordinary life. One is the posture, the internal perspective of joy. The other is the external, the relationship posture of reasonableness. And the third is the posture towards circumstances of prayer as opposed to anxiety. And then Paul says this, and I believe verse 7, I always used to um, read verse 7, and I still read verse 7, and it does apply to prayer. You know, the peace of God, the shalom of God will descend upon you when you pray in the midst of anxious moments. But I think that, that verse 7 has to do with all three things. Because the peace of God will descend upon you as you learn the secret of abiding in Christ and experiencing his joy. The peace of God will also descend upon you when you learn to allow your reasonableness to be seen by everyone. When you get along with your wing, the shalom of God descends upon the whole croft like nothing has ever been seen before. And of course, in, in moments of anxiety, when you, when you focus your heart on prayer and you, you, you bring those requests to God, um, that God will flood your hearts, of course, with his peace. So, so all three of these have to do with shalom in your life. And shalom and peace means more than just the absence of conflict. Peace is all about that sense of well-being, like we are living as we are supposed to live, as God intends for us to live. So the first point that I want to make today is there's an internal orientation towards life that we as believers are called to. And Paul uses this language. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, and the temptation when we read that is to say, Paul, you don't know my situation. It's okay for you writing two centuries or two millennia ago, writing these kind of words. They're not practical today. You don't understand the dynamics of what life is like in the 21st century. And if Paul were here today, he said, he would probably say to us, you know, you probably don't understand what life was like in the first century. So Paul's situation was this, as he's writing these words. He was in prison. The difference between Roman prison and Canadian prison and in Roman prison, you're responsible for paying your own way. Not only did you get popped into prison, you had to figure out some friends to make sure that you've got fed every day. You had to pay sort of rent, <laughs> especially if you were in house arrest. And then Paul's got people who know that he's in jail, and this, we get this from reading Philippians, that decide that they're going to start preaching the gospel so as to get Paul into more trouble than he's already in. Great, thanks, friends. And then the church of Philippi sends a fellow by the name of Epaphroditus to come and bring uh, refreshment to Paul. Help him in his prison. Epaphroditus gets sick. Paul's worried about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is worried about the people in Philippi who are worried about him. And it's just a chaotic mass of anxiety. Then, Paul finds out that there's two women in the church in Philippi who are fighting with each other. He's in Rome. How am I going to fix this? So, when Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, it's not that his life was a bed of roses. 
there were difficult times. But what's interesting is, is that as we live our lives centered in Christ, people will look at our lives when we get a hold of this commandment. And we allow joy to shine through. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is dependent on happenings and circumstances. But joy is dependent upon our understanding of our walk with God. The fact that our lives are built on something more than just circumstances or good fortune. They're built on the promises of God uh, and the peace that we experience with God as Christians. And the joy that we have is sustained by the presence of the Spirit in our lives. We can know his guidance, his strengthening, walking with us. Joy is also fueled by our hope. This life is not all there is. Uh, there, God has an amazing life planned for us today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. That being said, I don't think the joy-filled perspective always comes easy to us. That's why Paul says in, in Philippians continuously rejoice in the Lord at all times. He's written this in sort of the form of a command. There's a little misconception out there. The misconception is this. God will just give us joy. It's just there. And to a degree, that's sort of true. So that when we get up in the morning and we don't feel the joy... Somehow, then we think that there's something wrong with our faith. So when I get up in the morning and I don't feel joy, I don't say to Diane, Diane, have you seen my keys? Have you seen my glasses? I don't know, where did I put my watch? And oh, by the way, have you found my joy? No, joy isn't like that. Joy comes about as we build the habit of rejoicing into our lives. We get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and instead of acting like Eeyore the donkey, we become a little bit more like Tigger in our response to things. I hope I'm speaking a language at least some of you understand, right? Um, this, this picture, you know, that, oh, life is so awful. Um, you know, part of why that happens is we... we we kind of develop a, a habitual response of complaining. And it's not new with us. It goes all the way back to the children of Israel. And, and when we do that, I think our emotional muscles, just like our physical muscles, have muscle memory. And we just default into that form of behavior, that habit of behavior. Um, but yet God calls us to live extraordinary lives by remembering to rejoice all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm reminded oftentimes of the words of Habakkuk, who was, who was living in Israel at the time of the captivity, Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the nation. And Habakkuk's response to all of this uh, is, is he, he centered his life in the Lord, and he said something like this. He said, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. And what he's describing in ancient Israel is total economic collapse. COVID plus. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. 
I will join the God of my salvation, for God the Lord is my strength. So he, he put on this, this perspective of joy. And then there's a way of relating to the world that Paul talks about in Philippians here, and I call that our external sort of orientation. Um, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Some of you in your Bibles might see the word gentleness. Uh, and and uh, I think I need to say that, that gentleness and reasonableness are helpful, but they're not the full picture of what the word means. You know, when you think of reasonableness, you think of somebody who's easygoing and, and, and that type of thing, sort of uh, quiet and non-obtrusive. When you think of gentle, you think of very careful. When I think of gentle, I think of our, our little grandson, Bennett, who's four now, but when he was about two, one and a half, two, we took him to some friend's cabin at Adams Lake, and they had their dog there, and of course, little kids love dogs, so they go up, and, and if you're not watching them, the first thing they do is they pat the dog in the head, like, really hard, so it's, you know, and so you're always saying to the little guy, be gentle, be gentle, and don't pull the dog's ears off, it's not, he's not a plaything, but, but the picture of gentleness is sort of like that. Um, but I think we need to understand that, that the idea behind the uh, meaning of the word in, in the original Greek base, is based upon this concept of, of yielding upon something. Uh, so what it does is it points to a bunch of behaviors that, that really put us in the posture of not asserting our rights, but yielding to others. So graciousness, care for the disadvantaged, mercy, leniency, fairness. No, no insistence on flawless obedience. You know, you expect people to, to do exactly what you want or, you're, you know, you'll, what do they call it when they take people off of social media if they're not doing what they want? What, what do you, what do you, cancel, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of thing. That's the opposite of reasonableness. It's a life of winsome influence that focuses on others in our community here but outside our community. And one thing I want to draw to your attention this morning, I've drawn a few things to your attention because I'm drawing them to my attention too, is Paul doesn't say show reasonableness. In other words, it's something you do. He speaks of reasonableness almost as something that flows out of who you are and in your walk with God. And he said, let your reasonableness be known by all. In other words, reasonableness is not something you do, it's someone you are as the character of Christ is developed in you. And what's our motivation? Our motivation for reasonableness is this. Paul says, the Lord is near. Now, that has a temporal sense. Big word, right? That means uh, in time. The Lord is near is, is meaning Jesus could come back any day. So, so you gauge your behavior as, as being reasonable because Jesus is going to come back and judge you on your behavior. There's that piece. But... Reason, the Lord is near has a spatial sense, meaning Dave is near to Gavin. Six feet, though. Spatially, I'm there. God's called us to be reasonable because he walks beside us every day. He is near. And so when I live my life knowing that I live it with the audience of one, it changes how I act. And it forces me to do my best in relationships all the time because I want to please the one who walks beside me. 
Let me illustrate. A lot of you work in the service industry or have worked in the service industry, right? You know, restaurants and stuff like that and caring, you know, grocery stores. When, when I ask restaurant people what the day is of the week that they dislike most, guess what the day is? Sunday. Why? Because people, after they leave church, get really mean-spirited. They don't leave good tips. They, don't, they bellyache about everything. They've missed an important thing, that church behavior and non-church behavior are supposed to be the same. Because we let our reasonableness be known to everyone. I had a friend who I grew up with, and his grandma was a Christian. And part of what dragged me into church or Sunday school as a young person was, was the influence of this grandma. And I remember coming home from church one day, and we went to the grandma's house, me and my friend, grandma's house for lunch. And she was, you know, a saintly grandma who was in church and read her Bible and worshiped Jesus like there's no tomorrow. Um, until two o'clock on Sunday afternoon when roller derby came on TV. This loving grandma missed this commandment because she became angry and violent and she didn't use bad words, but she could well have as she's watching these ladies beat each other's brains out in this roller derby thing, right? You know, but, but she missed the point. She, she missed the reasonableness, uh, which we're called to do. Real quickly, as my time is going, there's also a particular way to, responding to, to respond to the circumstances of life that Paul calls us to as well. We live in an anxious world. I don't need to prove that. Y'all know that. There's stuff outside of our world, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's the economy, whether it's terrorism, whether it's global warming, whether it's Canadian politics, whether it's American politics, whether it's news. Uh, I don't even watch the news anymore. Ask Diane. I, I, I'll, I'll watch cartoons with my grandkids. To me, that's, that's great stuff. It's, yeah, it's a great way to deal with anxiety. But there are personal issues as well, right? We have stuff. We have family life. We have health issues. Those those all contribute to anxiety. And how should Christians respond to anxiety? First thing I want to say is for some of us, anxiety is debilitating. And for some of us, we seek the help of professionals. And that's a biblical thing and a Christian thing to do. But they also um, will tell you that you have to engage in self-care as one of the tools to manage your anxiety. And what Paul's talking about here is the self-care, right? Catch yourself. There are times in, in our spiritual lives, in our walk with God, that we allow worry to just run the gamut. My kids tease me, Diane teases me that my love language is worry. I worry about everything. Lindsay got bit by a bug like a month ago, and I'm worrying about whether she's going to die because it happened to be a big bug bite, but it's all good. But, you know, I kind of worry. I like what Corey Tenboom says about worry. She says, worry doesn't rob tomorrow of its difficulties. It robs today of its strength. And so Paul says, don't be anxious for anything, but replace the anxiety with a two-step process. Turn it to God in prayer. Paul says, present your request to God. It's amazing in our culture of, you know, strong men and strong women, we're often reluctant to do this, but Paul calls us to turn our request to God. God invites us to bring the things that weigh us down. And then we 
become thankful. Present the requests with thanksgiving. Again, that's reflected on the fact that we know who we are in Christ. We know all that God has done for us. And, and, and Paul says a profound dynamic happens, happens with all three, um, is that the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. Your thought processes keep you from being ir- irrational, um, keep you from being an emotional wreck. And when Paul says the peace of God to the Philippian church will guard your minds, he's painting a picture that the Philippians were very familiar with, and that was the existence of the Roman legions on every street corner in Philippi. That preserved the peace of the community. Philippi thought itself as sort of being the second Rome, you know, and, uh, a smaller imitation of Rome. People knew that the order in their daily lives was due to the placement of Roman legionaries on their streets. They were guarding their community. The Holy Spirit does that. The peace of God does that to our minds. Instead of allowing them to run amok and go off in a million different directions, the peace of God brings order and stability and strength to us as we yield to him. So in conclusion, some takeaways. You know what? Don't knock yourself out looking for the perfect situation to bring you joy. Circumstances will always provide you for a reason to look in the dark side. Choose joy every day. Look in the mirror and say to yourself, I'm going to make a commitment to rejoice because of who I am in Christ. Remember that the part of your life that influences others um, is built from the inside out. The kindness, the reasonableness, and allow the Spirit to build that character in you. One of the great things about living on a campus and living in a dormitory, even though it's, you know, we got some social distancing or physical distancing happening, is that our actions and our responses have a huge influence on one another. Um, and we're called to, to be kind, to be non-judgmental, to be caring, loving towards one another. Live in the reality of God building that uh, dynamic into your life. And finally, in, in moments of difficulty, when you're feeling a little tense, when the paper that was due uh, and you used to be able to get an extension by talking nicely to the instructor, now Canvas says, ah, it's due, you're cut off, and that without remedy. You know, not really that bad. But, but that being said, when you feel those anxious moments, invite God's, or accept God's invitation to rise above that. Take the 400,000-foot view, so to speak, and allow him to uh, give you his peace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the joy in this place. Thank you for the volume of praise, Lord, that 50 people have made this morning. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, Help us to be reminded to, to live our lives full of your joy. Not our own, but yours. Help us, Lord, to to be that caring friend to the people we come in contact with. And Lord, in moments of difficulty when they happen, uh, remind us to bring those to you. And thank you for the gift, Lord, of your peace, of your shalom in our lives. Be with us as we leave this place and enjoy lunch together in Jesus' name. Amen.